Lovely. Um, if you've arrived since the beginning, can I uh, offer you a very warm welcome uh, again? It's lovely to have you with us. We're, we're going through at the moment this, this section in Luke, um, working out what it really means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a, a disciple of Jesus. And you might have noticed we're, we're not just doing the easy bits, and uh, the passage this morning is one of the harder bits. Um, so that means we, we need God's help, uh, not just the, for me that I, I preach it faithfully, but, but that we would have hearts to, to listen and be willing to, uh, to sit under this. Um, so that in mind, let's, let's bow our heads and, and pray. For when our hearts were far away, your love went further still. Father, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace, your kindness shown to us. Thank you that you came and found us. And Lord, I pray that that grace, that love, would so uh, transform our lives that we would be willing to listen to hard teaching and to know that it is good for us and best for us. So help me now as I preach, help everyone here as we listen um, to be uh, disciples of you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what your, your favourite film is. Everyone's got a favourite film, haven't they? This is my favourite film. It's called Magnolia. That's a released in 1999. Has anyone seen Magnolia? One person. Brilliant. Two people. Okay, three. Is there four? Okay, three. So hardly any of you. This is good. Spoiler alert. Just, it's very hard to explain what this film is about, um, mainly because there are about 15 main characters. And at the beginning of the film, they're completely unconnected. And uh, you follow these 15 main characters through the sort of everyday normal events of their lives, again, seemingly completely unconnected. And it's a very, very long film. It's about three and a half hours long. And for about three hours, you're, you're thinking, where is this going? <laughs> There's no coherent plot as far as it seems. And it doesn't seem to make sense. It seems to be a random series of random events, one after another. It's only really in the last half an hour that you realize that there is a common element in each of their lives. There is a, there is a single thread which takes these disparate stories and brings them together as a coherent whole. Now, I'll begin with that because our passage today here in Luke 16 might appear a bit like Magnolia. It appears a bit random. Jesus takes us on a, on a merry tour of a whole different bunch of topics. We have money, justification, divorce, remarriage, heaven and hell, resurrection. It's all there. It seems a bit higgledy-piggledy, a little bit random. And a good, uh, a good clue that even the Bible editors don't really know what this is about, they, they title it in verse 16, Additional Teachings. <laughs> they, they don't know what it's about either. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if there is a, a line through this. I wonder if there is a coherent message here running through this section. And really it's a question. And the question is this. How should Christian believers relate to the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus calls them here the law and the prophets, and again later, Moses and the prophets. So here we are, this this chunk of the Bible we we call the Old Testament. It's quite a lot of it, isn't there? How should we relate to that? What should we think about that? And I wonder if if this is actually a very important question, not only for them back then, but for us here tonight. Because I found that Christians, we often swing between one or two extremes with regards to this question. The first extreme we might call legalism. 
Legalism says that we need the Old Testament law to tell us how to be saved. So uh, we need the moral codes, and because they're, they're there, the purpose of them is really to justify us before God. It helps separate the good people from the bad people. It helps God determine who's in his kingdom and who's out of his kingdom. That's legalism. But the opposite extreme we might call license. License says that the Old Testament law is completely obsolete. You might as well tear it out and throw it out the window. After all, Jesus has now come, hasn't he? We're now in an era of grace. And so that means, says the man who believes in license, that means we are free to live exactly how we want. Legalism and license. Two, two extremes which we might be tempted to swing towards, given our sort of different characters. We're going to see tonight that these extremes, legalism, license, are absolutely deadly for Christians. Absolutely deadly, because by clinging to either position, we completely miss the real purpose of the scriptures, which is to lead us to repentance in Christ. We're going to start in verse 16 on page 1050. If you've closed your Bibles, please open it up again. I've lost my page. There we are, page 1050. And look down with me to uh, verse 16. This is our first point on our handouts, if you've got one. It says this, the scriptures condemn license. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. Or perhaps a better translation there would be, everyone is being forcefully urged into it. According to Jesus, it seems we're now in something of a new era. The law and the prophets, if you like. That that was the old way that in which people were relate to God. Up until John the Baptist came along, he was the, the last prophet of the Old Testament era. Up until that point, people remained in God's favor through obedience to the law. But now, do you see, Christ has come. And it's as though we're in a new era altogether. We're given God's favor, not through obedience to the law, but rather through his grace shown to us in Christ. And really, this is what we've been hearing over the past few weeks, isn't it? If you've been here. The good news of the kingdom. It's no longer tied to a particular group of people or an ethnic group. No, rather, the the invitation of the kingdom of God has been broadened out and extended to all of us. You remember the the, the parable of the uh, great banquet, how the crippled, the poor, the blind and the lame, they're they're given this invitation. Even us Gentiles were invited in. Everyone is being forcefully urged into this party. It is a new era. So we might say, yes, there is a sense in which the good news of the kingdom has displaced the law and the prophets. But this doesn't mean we can simply tear out our Old Testaments and throw them out the window. Because whilst the way in which we relate to God has changed, the God to whom we relate has not changed. Our God's character never changes. Just look at verse 17. It is easier, says Jesus, for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. 
Jesus is warning us here not to slip into that extreme of license. Yeah, we're under grace and that's wonderful. But that doesn't mean we can simply live as we wish. To put it another way, that the God who revealed himself there at Mount Sinai, giving the law, is the same God who died for us at, at Calvary. So what he revealed to be morally right back then, it's still morally right now. What he revealed to be morally wrong back then is still morally wrong now. And in fact, we might go further because we see that God really he expects more of people under this new covenant, in this new era, than he did in the old covenant, under the old era. That, that might surprise us, but just think for a moment that they had the law, but we have the spirit. Uh, they had the shadows and the pictures, but we have the realities. Uh, they had fear, but we have a certain hope. So for those of us who've been freely invited into this kingdom, well, God does expect more of us in terms of the way we live. Which is why I think Jesus gives us this strange example here in verse 18. It seems a bit random, doesn't it? Verse 18. Let me, let me read that. It says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We know from elsewhere in, in the Bible that Pharisees were serial divorcees. They were quite happy to get rid of their old wife as she grows older and then switch her for a sort of younger, prettier, more beautiful model. They're quite happy doing that because for them, they, it, technically... They were, were, were within the letter of the law. Technically, they were, they were doing nothing wrong. But Jesus expects citizens of his kingdom to hold to a higher standard. I remember a while ago bumping into an old friend I'd, I'd not really seen for a long while. And um, I asked her, How, how's the family? And as soon as I asked that question, I kind of knew um, that was the wrong question to ask. And she said, um, and told me that how her and her husband, that they're thinking about divorce. Um, she was quick to tell me there's no infidelity, there, there, there's no abuse or anything like that, but they've simply grown tired of each other, frustrated with one another. One another. Just, you know, as it happens, they, they sort of just drifted apart. And I, I, I was shocked to hear this, really, because I'd known the family for a number of years, but what, what surprised me most um, was the fact that she had kind of spiritualized the whole thing in her mind. I remember she said this, it sort of stuck with me. She said, I'm just trying to work out what God's will is. I'm just trying to work out what God's will is. Now, I didn't say it at the time, it wasn't appropriate, but God's will on divorce could not be clearer. Uh, I guess if, the Bible says unless there is an infidelity or, or abuse, he intends married couples to remain married. And... Um, in a situation where divorce is permitted, he, he intends that they remain single afterwards. Now Jesus, he says it here as a throwaway line really in verse 18 to illustrate his big point. And, and there's a lot more to say on this topic. I imagine loads of questions are being thrown up around the room. Many of us come from backgrounds with divorced parents and so many of us might have gone through that uh, ourselves. Please do come chat with me if this is sort of raising big issues. And there's sort of books uh, on the bookstall, a bit like this one, Momentary Marriage, which, which sort of deal with this issue. It's a painful one for many of us. But we can't dodge verses like this. 
We can't just pretend they're not there and sort of move on to the next verse. I guess it's going back to remembering that wonderful invitation we've been given, this, this wonderful invitation to the banquet. We've been given access to this kingdom. But in this kingdom, we are not king. Jesus is king, which means we're not free to simply rewrite his moral will, even if it's difficult and, and painful. Imagine for many of us, the issue isn't really divorce and remarriage. Perhaps it's um, the question of who we might marry. Perhaps we want to rewrite what the Bible says about that. Perhaps we want to rewrite uh, who we, uh, what the Bible says about who, who we might sleep with. Perhaps we want to rewrite what the Bible says about um, sort of other things to do with sexual ethics. But we're not free to do that. In the kingdom, Jesus is king. We've got to therefore resist this temptation to use grace as a means to license. Because not one line of God's character has changed since back then. So the scriptures, they condemn license. But now as he moves on, we see also the scriptures condemn the opposite extreme. They, they condemn legalism. You might have noticed how earlier on the passage here it kind of begins with a bit of a controversy. Jesus had been telling his disciples how they can't serve both God and money at the same time. This morning, if you were here, we had a children's slot Katie was leading. And poor Toby Kennedy had to listen to commands of his two masters. Ross was telling him to eat a bunch of biscuits, whereas his other master, Tom, was telling him not to eat the biscuits. And his poor sort of um, nine-year-old didn't really know what he was doing. And he didn't know, he was sort of torn, torn sort of left, right and centre. Poor chap. Well, so it is with, with uh, God and money. You can't serve them both. But when Jesus said that, the, the religious leaders here, they just couldn't believe that at all. They think, surely that can't be true. So look how they respond in verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. You see, back then, the the common consensus was that if you had money, if you had wealth, then surely you were blessed by God. If if you had money, surely you you were obeying God's law. Why else would you be blessed with all this stuff? So everyone, as they looked at the Pharisees with their money and their external acts of religion, everyone thought, yes, those are the blessed guys. Surely everyone would think these are the guys who have God's approval. But Jesus isn't so sure. He says here that wealth and external religion, they might fool man, but they do not fool God. Not one ounce. And so Jesus, he tells this story in verse 19 to to expose these guys for what they are. They might be justified in the eyes of men, but they're not justified before God. And this story here in verse 19, it it kind of picks up on those ideas. Let's look at it, verse 19 in your Bibles. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
Jesus is a master storyteller, isn't he? He he kind of paints a really stark contrast between these two characters. The rich man, there he is in his mansion with his massive gates. And there is Lazarus, passively laid outside the gates, which probably indicates he was crippled or lame. There's the rich man, he's, he's clothed in purple and fine linen. Only emperors wore purple. And there is Lazarus, clothed with sores, weeping sores. The rich man, he's feasting sumptuously every day. Lazarus, starving. Longing to eat what was in the bins of the rich man, but not given access. To all intents and purposes, we, we look at the rich man and we think... This guy, surely, is blessed by God. Surely this guy is the the law-abiding man. And we look at Lazarus outside, cursed by God, among the dogs, being licked by them. We're thinking, yeah, he's cursed. Rich man, blessed. Poor man, cursed. That's what we might think. But look what happens next. It's simply shocking. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. What a shocking reversal. There's the rich man, the the guy we thought surely was blessed by God. Well, he's in hell. And there's the poor man, the, the unclean outsider. He sat right next to Abraham in heaven. And we're thinking, well, why is that? Well, why, why, the, why the shock? Why the reversal? Well, as ever, the, the clue is in the detail here. You might know Jesus tells lots and lots of parables, doesn't he? In all the four Gospels, he loves stories. He loves parables. This is the only one where a character in a parable, is given a name. And the the name Lazarus, it it means God is my help. God is my help. So Lazarus, he's pictured as someone who humbly depends on God to save him. God to justify him, if you like. And then contrast that to the rich man, who, like the Pharisees in verse 15, tried to justify themselves. They confused material wealth with God's approval. They, they thought that by having money, that surely they were law-observing. But no, it's a shocking reversal. But maybe we think, maybe it's not too late. Maybe it's not too late for the rich man. Well, read on with me, verse 24. So the rich man called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Up until this point, we might have thought that perhaps the rich man was simply ignorant of Lazarus lying at his gates. Perhaps he didn't realise him. Perhaps he didn't know. 
But here it's revealed the rich man not only knows Lazarus by sight, but also by name. He would have walked past him every day, and yet in his self-righteousness, he did nothing. And I guess this is the problem with legalism. If we think that God accepts us on the basis of our moral performance, then inevitably what we'll do, we'll start looking down our long noses at people we think are less deserving than us. People we think we're better than. And so of course we're going to use our wealth far less mercifully and compassionately because we deserve it and and they don't. But the rich man, he showed no compassion to Lazarus in life. And so in death, he receives no mercy. So what does the rich man do? Well, it's interesting, doesn't it? He appeals to Abraham for help. Perhaps he's hoping that his Jewish heritage, his religious background, maybe, maybe that will sort of curry from some favor, but, but it doesn't. It seems God has fixed this great chasm between hell and, and heaven, and it is too far. It is too far. And it's also too late. The Bible says there is no such thing as purgatory. This is it for the rich man. For eternity. Forever and ever. I think it was Dante who imagined that over the gates of hell were the words, Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. There's no way out. The author, George Orwell, I think he used to live just up the road from, from where I lived. He was uh, once a re- resident of, of Hampstead. He tells the story of one, he was in his garden, right next to Hampstead Heath, uh, eating a, a cream tea. And uh, he describes how he saw a wasp uh, come and land on his plate and start sucking up a, a blob of jam. And uh, Orwell, not really liking wasps, who likes wasps, uh, grabs a knife and swiftly sort of cut the wasp in half. But to his surprise... The, The wasp paid no attention. It just carried on sucking up the jam. All the while, a thin stream of jam sort of flowing out of its esophagus onto the plate. But it's only once the wasp tried to fly away that it realized its fate. I wonder how many of us go through life enjoying its sweetness, sucking up the jam, But it's only when it's time to fly away do we realise the dreadful condition we might be in. I hope you see now why legalism is so lethal. It tricks us into thinking, hey, we're fine, we're fine, we're moral, we're wealthy, we're we're upright, we're blessed. And all the while, what do we do? We, We withhold compassion to those we think are less worthy, less deserving, to the poor, to the outsider, to the unclean. We're not interested. This story, well, it it might be a story, but hell is a real place. And your morality, it will not save you. Your religious background, it will not save you. Your money will not save you. So here is a, a reason for us to identify with not the rich man, but Lazarus. Because like him, are we not also spiritually poor, unable to pay our way to heaven with any sort of righteousness we might have. We can't do that. We're poor. Are we not spiritually crippled, 
powerless to save ourselves. And yet to us, Lazarus is. To us has been extended an invitation to eat with Abraham at the heavenly banquets. With God as our help. That is where we're going if we're trusting in him. You see, if we've understood this grace, understood this invitation, this radical reversal that we don't deserve, surely we'll be willing to then extend that sort of same mercy and compassion to our needy brothers and sisters around the world. There's lots of ways you might do that. I'm sure some of you, you might, you might give to um, sort of Christian charities supporting uh, suffering Christians. And one, one Hannah and I know about is, is Barnabas Fund. Um, it's, it's a great way of partnering with Christians around the world, often in, in countries where it's illegal to be Christian, who are suffering horribly, and to partner with them financially and in prayer. If, if you don't know about that, that's, I think that's a good way to try and apply some of these, some of these truths here. I'm happy to sort of chat with you afterwards if that's, that's of interest to you. Well, I don't know what you're thinking at this point of the story, and maybe you're thinking, this is just really unfair. This is horribly unfair. I mean, how on earth was the rich man supposed to know this horrible fate awaiting him? Is it a bit like the wasp with the knife coming out of nowhere? Perhaps um, if he was you know, forewarned, maybe he would have changed his ways. Did he, did he know? Well, as the story comes to an end, we're going to see Jesus makes very clear that God has provided ample warning, ample evidence for the need to repent. That's our final point tonight. The scriptures are sufficient for repentance. Look down to verse 27 with me. The rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He's the rich man. He, he realizes that it is too late for him. But what about his family? He, he, he knows his five brothers. He knows what they're like. He knows that they're very similar to how he lived. Um, self-righteous, legalistic, rich to themselves, not generous to others. So he's thinking, what, what, what could possibly persuade my brothers, my five brothers? What would persuade them? Maybe if they were faced with some irrefutable evidence, maybe some sort of vision in the night sky. Maybe if, um, if Lazarus came back from, from the dead and, and, and spoke to them in a dream or something. But no. It seems they already have everything they need. Look at verse 29. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Do you see, the problem is not a lack of empirical evidence. The problem is the, the lack of desire to repent. Perhaps the Pharisees who, who scoffed at Jesus' teaching, perhaps the, the rich man and his brothers, sim- perhaps they simply loved money more. 
I remember when I was at university a number of years ago now, I, I, in my third year, I think, I took a, a number of friends along to this Christianity Explored course at my church. It's similar to the one we're, we're running at the moment. Uh, I think, uh, if I remember the names right, I think it was Tim who studied ancient history, um, Amy, who was a, a theologian like me, and um, Romain, she was one of these angry atheist biology types, you know the types. And I invited them to say, come, come along to Christianity Explored and ask your hard questions. You know, see if it stacks up to, to historic scrutiny, to theological scrutiny, to sort of um, scientific scrutiny. You know, ask these hard questions. Do it for yourself. And amazingly, they came. And after the, after the weeks and weeks and weeks went by, one by one, they became persuaded that it is true, that Jesus is God. But not one of them repented and turned to Christ. I remember vividly, Tim, I was chatting with him on, on the stairs leading up to our rooms, and he, I say, he said to me, I quote, I know Jesus is God, that much is obvious, but I want to keep on getting drunk with my mates. I remember chatting with Amy in uh, the college garden, and uh, she said, I know it's true, but Andy, never speak, to this, uh, about, never speak to me about this ever again. And I discovered later, she, you know, she just started a relationship with, with a guy, and she didn't want to stop uh, sleeping with him. So she, she left it. Remain, no longer an atheist, very much a theist now, an angry theist. Um, she said, oh, I'm, I'm not going to follow Jesus um, because I'm terrified of what my friends would think of me. See, the problem is never, ever, ever with the evidence. It's, the problem is always with our hearts. We simply love other things more than we love our creator. We, we cling onto our sin, onto our idols. Like, we won't give them up. A bit like that wasp, we, we keep on sucking up the jam, hoping against hope that the day won't come when we, we'll be called to fly away. But that day will come. And by then it'll be too late. So if you're here tonight... And you feel the need to turn to Christ, to repent. If you desire to come to this wedding banquet, this this heavenly banquet which we've been freely invited to. If you want to know your creator and your redeemer, then this is all you need. Really, the scriptures are enough. You might know at the very end of Luke's gospel that we read of two men who, who go on a journey. They, they had been in Jerusalem and they're, they're gutted, really. They're, they're absolutely, the heart is, is broken because they thought that Jesus was the Messiah. And then they saw him crucified and their hopes had really died with him. So as they're walking along the road, they're just heartbroken and then they, they meet another traveller who, who starts walking with them. And over the course of this long journey, the, the man starts ex- explaining the scriptures to them. And he explained from the law and the prophets how the Messiah had to die, and then he would rise again. Now later on, when they reached their destination, the the travelers described how their hearts burned within them as the scriptures were opened. You see, they had met the risen Lord Jesus. Not as they walked alongside him for all those miles. No, they met him in the scriptures. And we're told that story because this is where we meet him today. 
The scriptures are enough. It's as though it's better than a resurrection appearance. So friends, I wonder what we think about our Bibles. Just going back to the question we asked earlier on. I mean, we're a Bible teaching church, aren't we? We always have a sort of a Bible-based sermon. But what do we think about our Bibles? How do we relate to the Bible? I'd encourage you, if you're not in the habit, why not redeem your commute? If, if you're on one of these sort of 40-minute sort of train journeys into London, redeem that time. Listen to a podcast with a sermon or, or perhaps get some Bible reading notes and, and, and read your Bible in that sort of dead time. I want to use your lunch break in the city to meet up with someone. I meet up with a lot of you in the city, and half of you sort of work on top of each other in these various buildings. Well, why not use some of your time? Meet up for coffee. Uh, encourage one another from the word. And if you're not in a small group, why not commit to joining one? And often we're faced with really tricky passages like this one in Luke 16, and we need one another. We need to help one another to apply it to each other's lives. If you're not in a small group, join one. Friends, let me commend to you the scriptures. Not as an end in itself. We're not obsessed with the Bible as an end in itself. We come to the scriptures because this is where we meet our saviour. This is where we hear about grace. This is where we're, our hearts are warmed and we're invited once again to that heavenly banquet. So friends, the scriptures, they're not licensed. They're not legalism. It's all about Christ. And it always has been. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this loving warning. Thank you that you tell us now before it's too late. Thank you that though we are poor, though we are crippled, though we can offer you nothing, thank you that you have invited us into your kingdom to be with you. Father, forgive us of our self-righteousness. Forgive us of our legalism. Forgive us of our lack of generosity. And we pray, Father, that being amazed by your grace, we would be transformed, that we would be a generous church, that we would be a church overflowing with love and a church that is zealous for your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Andy.